Caution. Learning in progress. Welcome back to another episode of Smarter Every Season. This is Paul Harms here and in the studio this morning, this afternoon. I have a very full studio today, which is kind of a nice change for pace for the last few episodes. It's been a little quiet. There's been just ones and twos in here with our guests. So to my right is Tyler Hubert. How's it going, Paul? It's wonderful. Good. Across from me is Hans. Hello. Hans is going to run double duty today, and not only is he going to be co-host, he's also going to play for a little bit of guest and, and farm life experience out of Hans. Yeah, I think something like that. It feels odd to be back here. It's been like two months since I've well, been back on the podcast. This is what we ask of you when you're out for a handful of podcasts. I got to do double we duty. We ask you to come back in and do double okay, duty. Okay, I can yep. deal with that. I can deal with that. Got to carry a little extra water. Yeah. And in the final seat with us today is Caleb Schlater. Hey, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> So, so do I refer to everybody as everyone? Is that okay? Or um, do I need to be more specific? Do I need to start calling names out of our listeners? No. Okay. Because that was going to be a Unless long you know list. <laughs> I don't. I don't. But. You all, everyone. Yeah, all this works. Uh, Caleb, tell us about yourself. Tell our listeners about yourself. Well, I get the awesome opportunity here at Precision Planning to lead the product support team, uh, and it's really an amazing blessing that I get to have the opportunity to work alongside all the individuals in this room, the individuals that uh, are upstairs helping support our growers as they go throughout the season, and you know, having a team that's as dedicated and has the expertise on our products that our team does, it makes, makes my life easy. It's a lot of fun. I have a blast doing it. And speaking of expertise, you came to Precision Planning with some expertise in where we're going to go with the conversation today. So expertise is a strong word. We're going to go. No. We're going to go with expertise. <laughs> expertise sounds awesome. <laughs> so uh, today's episode, we're going to focus on the conversation following up on a previous episode with Wendy, where she focused on managing yield sense during harvest operations and how to run the 2020, getting all of that correct. Caleb's going to help us... Co- carry that conversation forward and talk about the combine, the machine, the head itself, and how to optimize its performance. Just walk us through some of, some of his learnings and he is, because you've gotten to go around the world and oh, yeah. see a lot of different machines doing a lot of different crops. Yeah, I, uh, I spent the last 10 years of my life focused around uh, combines and harvesters and combine heads. I mean, I've there's there's been a lot of people that I've gotten the opportunity to interact with that I would definitely classify as the experts in the field. I mean, there are individuals that I've been with that have been able to put their hand on the side of a combine and tell you exactly which bearing was going out. And just that's that's the type of, of expertise that I've been around and thankfully have been able to learn from and thankfully have been able to, to experience alongside my team uh, when I was a part of that group. And getting to travel from central Illinois to the Palouse, if you guys ever get a chance – go harvest in the Palouse. The Palouse? The Palouse. It's out west, and they have hillsides that are... uh, I don't think it would be light uh, to say that these individuals are the craziest operators I've ever met. Like, it is scary for me. I'm a flatlander, (laughs) and there are guys that are running on slopes that you have to put your foot up against the door to keep yourself in the training seat as they're running through these fields. And so 
Are these the the tilt axle oh, ones? Oh yes, yeah. So you've got self leveling uh, shoes on there. You've got it to where you're making sure that you're staying safe, but at the same time, they are just it's a it's a dangerous environment. But they love it. They absolutely they go out there and man, if you you want to associate a cowboy with anybody in harvesting, it's the guys in the Palouse. Okay, narrow down out west. Where where is so you're talking about the <laughs> out west? <laughs> out west. <laughs> you know, if you go. West of the Mississippi, somewhere in that general region. No, the Palouse is out in Washington and Oregon area, and it's just it's it's a beautiful, beautiful location. There's just beautiful rolling hills, but I would never want to farm that ground. Those guys are a special breed. I I love and I trust every single one of them when I get in the cab. But for me, it's just I like my flat ground here in central Illinois. It makes it easy on us, and and uh, we don't have to get into like. Our scariest slope is a, is a waterway. <laughs> they, they go on pretty crazier stuff than that. They would laugh at our waterways. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I've gotten to travel all over the place. I get to go to western Canada, do canola, then out and done lentils, pulse crops, traveled the whole wheat belt uh, during the custom harvest run, uh, spent a lot of time in the I-States and, and in the, the essentially the corn belt, uh, harvesting corn and soybeans. Uh, been to Europe multiple times to harvest there, been to Brazil multiple times to harvest there. And so just really been kind of inundated with combines for, for a majority of my professional career. So second craziest place, if the Palouse was the, the most unique or the craziest experience, what's, what's number two? Uh, Brazil, I would say, but not from an operating standpoint, just from a standpoint of, of infrastructure. Overall, I would say they they operate at different levels of moisture than us, so they have a, a different style of operation as they go through and, and process the, the the crops. But getting to and from the operations, that is an adventure. I mean, we were we were on a farm where we saw a storm front coming in, and we were probably two and a half hours away from from pavement. And they said, "If you guys don't leave now." you will not make it out of here for three days. And we said, well, we probably should get in the car and go. Well, we didn't, and we stayed on that operation for three days because we couldn't get the rental car out of this road. Uh, there was just mud everywhere, and it was just, there's, there's, they don't have the, the pavement everywhere like we do or even the gravel roads that we do. And so it's just a, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting environment, but man, I love it down there. The, the people are so gracious. They're, they're awesome individuals. Every meal was way too much food for me uh, to eat. The meat parade. And, and it's, it's like, it's 95 degrees outside. I already have regular sweats. I don't need meat sweats yes. <laughs> at the same time while I'm riding behind this machine, <laughs> checking loss. Yeah. So if you ever get a chance, if you've for our listeners, if you've not ever gotten to eat at a Brazilian barbecue, highly recommend it. Um, the Brazilian barbecues that you can get access to here in the United States are um, some of the higher end ones are, are a moderate facsimile of those native ones, the, the ones that are local in Brazil. But uh, they're everywhere. Even the local gas station has like three and four star meat parade. Yeah. It's kind of like Central Illinois, and our local gas station has four- and five-star pizza at Casey's General Store. That's, they're not paying me to say this. I just love Casey's taco pizza and breakfast pizza. Just 
You can also get a fine case of the meat sweats after Casey's Pizza. <laughs> so, fun fact. So, our team, within the last kind of weekend here, kind of had a little get-together where we did a brisket cook-off. We had yeah. a blast. Okay, On the way home from that, though, like when my wife and I started dating, I used that term a couple times, the meat sweats. And I think that she kind of thought, like, oh, that's just something he made up. That's just something goofy that he says. Despite that and many other things, she's still decided to marry me. But after our brisket cook-off, and it being a fairly warm Saturday that we all got together, that was part of our conversation on the van ride home was she's going through her phone. I said, what are you doing? She said, I had to look up what the meat sweats was. <laughs> Somebody said that out there. One of your coworkers said that. That's a real thing. Like, yeah, of course it's a real thing. I didn't just make it up. She's like, I think I'm having that. I'm having the meat sweats right now. That's a su- that's a successful brisket cook-off right there. That's exactly right. I think it was a fully su- successful. Yeah. It, was, it was a great weekend. Absolutely. <clears throat> oh, yeah. So I don't know, Caleb, if we came right out and said it, but what can you tell us a little bit more about the position you held or what position you were in that, that gave you that level of exposure to, to combines? Yeah, yeah. So I started off as a, as a data analyst, uh, my first job in the, into the harvesting organization, and uh, they – hired me on to analyze data and I knew nothing about Excel. So that was a bold move by them. Uh, <laughs> just being honest, I'm going to learn on the job here. Uh, then I, then I ended up moving into the harvesting training role. So I, I got the opportunity to travel around North America uh, and train dealers and growers on how to operate and optimize and maintain their machines. And then as I, as I continued to, grow my responsibilities and, and learn and develop as an individual. Uh, I got the opportunity to manage the marketing for North America on, on harvesters. And that was, uh, that was a very eye-opening experience, a very humbling experience for myself, because then I got to go out and I got to have really, really good conversations with growers all across the, the world about what they like of their machines, what they don't like of their machines, how we could make them better. And uh, also get the opportunity to see some operations really thrive once they, once they put a piece of equipment on their on their farm that matched well and and was uh, important for their operation to really, really grow their business. Which for me, that's that's what I love seeing. The other thing that I, I think about there is you know we we talk about this a lot of being for others, and that really gave me a, a good opportunity to be for the growers in that sense and in combines are the second most important pass of the year. Uh, you know, planting, of course, that's where we're here. That's, that's always the first important pass of the year, but harvesting really is your second most important pass because you, you make mistakes in harvesting. That's costing you real dollars. That's costing you either time that's costing you crop. I mean, there, there are some, some key pitfalls that come into play during the harvest season that, while we're not as short of a window as planting and we're not as stressed out as we are in planting, harvesting is, is more like a marathon. And we, we actually just talked about this the other yeah, day. Yeah, so planting is a sprint, harvesting is a marathon, and you have to have the endurance, and not just you as an individual, but your machine has to have the endurance as well to make it through that season because you're putting a lot of work into that combine. That combine is doing a lot of things for you that we used to all do by hand. And we're all thankful we didn't grow up in that generation where we were shucking by hand and, and cleaning by hand. I'd be a lot thinner right now. (laughs) You are spot on there, but that machine's doing so much work that it, it, 
requires us to take care of it, us to maintain it, us to manage that uh, as we go throughout the season, or else it could lead to costly downtime. It could lead to costly loss out in the field. So you were talking a little bit in the in the prep of whenever you kind of talk combines, there's some general areas that you like to kind of focus in on. Can you kind of repeat that conversation that we had, again, in the prep now in kind of the categories of you break down yeah. combine maintenance into? Yeah, when I when I usually speak on combines, uh, I, I always like to snap the line back to what is the combine doing in the processes that are taking place? Because that's what combine means, right? It's combining a bunch of processes into one machine and putting it through the field at one time. We used to have multiple machines that did all these different processes. We slapped them together, and now we can do it in one pass, which is what we all like to do. And so when I think about harvesting, I think about those processes. And those processes allow us to kind of think about each individual aspect of that machine in a different way. So the first one is gathering, right? You have to gather the crop. That's what our headers do, whether it's a corn head, a draper head, an auger head, a stripper head, a pickup head. We're gathering that crop. Then what we want to do is we want to go into feeding, and that's where we're using our feeder house. That's where we're feeding that crop into the rotor. Then we get into our, our threshing and separating, and that's where all the magic happens, right? We're threshing that crop, so we're actually taking it. Threshing means to take the, the grain away from the point of the attachment. So on corn, it'd be taking the kernel off of the cob. In beans, it's taking the, the soybean out of the pod. And then separating is actually getting those two to separate themselves inside the rotor. So we want to actually have that rotor separate or dispel the grain and carry the rest of the fodder or material out of the back of the rotor. That's, that's the key goal in threshing and separating. Then we get into cleaning. Cleaning is, is extremely important to get right because it's either going to define whether you have a clean tank, whether you have trash in the tank, whether you have a clean ground behind you or whether you have an uh-oh behind you and you're leaving a lot of, lot of, lot of good hard cash, as, like, as I like to refer to it, on the ground, right? Then we get into grain handling. So after we get through cleaning, we get to grain handling. Grain handling is where we're actually taking the clean grain and we're, we're using the machine to move it across and then go up the elevator and into the bin, which is where we hold all of that good hard cash that we've earned by all of our, all of our labor throughout the year, right? We've, we've done a lot of work to grow this beautiful crop. We want to make sure it's in a safe spot. We put it in the grain tank, and then that's where we unload it into our grain cart or semi or, or whatever you're, you're wanting to unload in at the time. The other, the other process that we kind of skip as we stop following the grain is what happens with our residue. We have our residue management after that. So we want to make sure that as we're, as we're getting rid of all of the trash or fodder or, or whatever you want to call it, that goes into our residue management system where we're chopping it up, we're spreading it out. So we make sure that we're getting good breakdown in that field. And we're also not introducing hot spots where we didn't cover a certain area and we're not getting that breakdown. So all of those processes combined make a combine. See what I did there? <laughs> Very good. Yeah, I, I see what you did there. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning. Yep. Let's start with the gather. Okay. The goal here is Paul kind of teased in the beginning. We had Wendy on a couple episodes ago. She focused heavily on yield sense. If everybody hasn't picked up on it already, we're focusing on combines and combine maintenance. How do we get the combine yep. ready to go to the field? 
So what are the general maintenance pieces that you see get overlooked or that are important to call out before going to the field? Sure. The first thing that I'll say, and we talked a little bit about this, well, our conversation is going to be somewhat brand agnostic. So my first recommendation, contrary to what my dad tells me, which his, his explanation behind an operator's manual is, that's just another man's opinion. <laughs> In harvesting, that is not the case. When we're talking about maintenance. When we're talking about maintenance. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about settings. That's more of a gray area. But in maintenance, it's not just some other man's opinion. It's some other man's fact, the person that designed the equipment and put those maintenance intervals in there for a reason and put those things that we need to be looking at in there for a reason so we can have a better experience. Not a lot of gray area in that. So... Here, here would be my question, because what I have found a little bit is there was a lot of things like that that my father shared his opinion mm -hmm. with to me when I was growing up on the farm. And I would have thought in working for an agriculture company, going back and telling him kind of the conversation you just had, like, no, Dad, this is fact. If you went and told my dad that, he'd believe you. But I can't <laughs> tell my dad that. So That's I don't know very if you similar to our operation. <laughs> yeah, okay. Very similar to our operation. <laughs> and here's the thing. In my dad's opinion most of the time is spot on. And I don't know how he does it, but he just knows these things. Whereas I'm sitting there like, oh, I got to find that in the operator's manual before I actually pump grease into it. So no, that's good. Uh, so yes. So for, for the listeners, for those of you that are, that are partaking in this podcast, my recommendation is that with both your heads and your combine, there's this beautiful thing called an operator's manual. Now I know it may still be wrapped in plastic, that's okay. You, you know, you can't take the wrapper off. That devalues the operator's manual. It hurts the resale value. I, I haven't heard that, and I don't believe that. <laughs> so It will improve the resale value of the combine itself, though. <laughs> it is true. I'll buy into that one. <laughs> so, yeah, take it out of the plastic. Let it breathe a little bit. You know, just just go ahead and take a peruse in that. It's, it's really, it's not great reading. I'll be 100% honest. I, I reviewed a lot of them. I had to go through and make edits. That's not my favorite thing to do. However, however, I do believe there's a lot of really good information that's held within those that will give you a good guide into being successful into your season. And I, 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 I'm not biased anymore because I'm not on the harvesting side, so you guys can trust that this is, this is truth. This isn't a bias of me sitting there like, hey, I edited these, so you have to read them. That's this not the case what, anymore. This is what Caleb does on Schlater Farms to keep his own equipment running now. Correct. Correct. So, as we talk about gathering, we went on a little bit tangent there, but that's all right. But as we talk about gathering, we're talking about heads. Heads are extremely important because if you don't do a good job up front, you're never giving the combine the opportunity to be successful regardless of what you do. Regardless of your settings, regardless of your maintenance on your machine, if your head is not ready to go to field to gather that crop and to put it and feed it nice and evenly just like a combine likes to be fed into that machine, it's going to, it's going to lead to some failure. And so when I think about those things that individuals often overlook, usually the thing I think about really on corn heads is the first one is deck plates. Deck plates are this mystical, how do I set it? Where do I set it? Uh, I, I think it's to stock diameter. I'm going to go ahead and play with it that way. 
that's that's kind of the mindset of deck plates. Oh, the stalk is that thick. That's where I need to set the the deck plates. The first thing that I always tell people is number one, make sure they move. Yeah, that's the biggest thing. Is they won't move. They won't move. If if you don't move, you're gonna have problems. <clears throat> yeah, there are guys that'll go to the field and they don't check their deck plates before they get into the field, and they're sitting there fighting the fact that they they can't get the deck plates to open up or to close down. Yeah, and that's I mean I've. I've been on machines that, have, that won't move in your, your hand kite. You can't do anything. Yeah. Yeah, because if you pinch it too close, all you're going to be doing is pushing. Yep. You won't be able to feed anything in effectively. If you've got a nice, healthy tree trunk, you're not going to be able to get that thing into that corn head because you're pinched too close, and now you're in trouble because you didn't take the step to, when you're setting up that corn head, making sure that those deck plates have freedom of movement and making sure that they're set up in the V and – for those of you that are thinking, well, what's the V? Look in your operator's manual. Every corn head has it, except for, I believe, uh, a corn head that has self-adjusting deck plates, which are really nice when you're going through different types of varieties and over and under, or not over and under, but over sandburrs, stuff of that sort, to where it automatically adjusts for you. You don't have to have your finger on the, on the, on the button. But that, that's one thing that I see often is guys will get out there, and they didn't check that before they, they pulled the corn head out of the shed. They hooked everything up. They turned it on. Everything worked great, and then they went to work, and the deck plates were the one thing they forgot to do. Yeah, I'd be great. I mean, I'm, it's painful pulling in behind someone that just hooked up a head and didn't check for deck plates. Yeah. When they get the field, it's like, ooh. Mm. Yep. The other thing uh, on corn heads is just making sure you have your snouts all level. That's important. Uh, you know, a lot of us, when we get done with harvesting season, what do we want to do? Do we really want to go into the shed and, and pull everything apart and do maintenance? Mm. Especially if you're – I always talk about November. November is this magical month that if you're running in the first week of November, like, you're, you're okay. But as you get to the second week of November, everybody gets really, really upset, and you don't know why. Like – it's this magical week where in this is all region based. Each region has a different week in their year that they can pinpoint and say that's the week where everybody gets grumpy. <laughs> Ours here is November. Yeah. And so when you're still running in November, if you get close to Thanksgiving, the first thing you, you don't want to do is pull that combine into the shed, tear apart your corn head, tear apart your combine, and go to work, right? You wanna at this point you're wanting meat sweats from Thanksgiving dinner. Mm-hmm. 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 I'm thinking about that football game in the, in or multiple football, game. football games. Yeah. Yeah. I want to watch that in peace. I don't want to be thinking about my combine head. That's right. Yeah. That's or you're right. you're thinking about tillage. Yeah, or, or you're thinking about tillage. I mean, there's, there's, yeah, you're going right into the next, the next season for yourself. And, and especially if you're in late November and you're thinking about tillage, your window is very <laughs> yeah, short, very small. Right. <laughs> so there's a lot of things that, we sometimes overlook at the end of the season that we have to really pay attention to at the beginning of the season. And I would say deck plates is one of those. Gathering chains, making sure you have properly tensioned gathering chains is extremely important. Your snouts, making sure those are all level. You don't have any damage there. You're, you're not going to be pushing that into, if you go into a waterway, you're not going to bend one over because it wasn't leveled up. Uh, and making sure that all of your service points are hit throughout the season. Uh, that's, that's where I'm going to give this plug. I'll probably give it about 15 more times through this conversation, but man, hit those service interval points on your, on your heads, on your combine, because that's, what's going to give you longevity. That's, what's really going to take you to the next level. So 
I know I've called this out in other conversations, but having a notepad in the cab with you where you can kind of jot down, hey, need to take a look at snout number three or my next interval is at this time. I don't find good adoption out of the I'm going to have a notepad and actually take notes and keep that notepad where I can find it and reuse it. So I'm going to change that and say, don't worry about a notepad. Get a Sharpie or a dry erase marker. You've got tons of glass in front of you, and it's right in front of you. When the thought hits, have the Sharpie in the, in the little pocket there. Pull it up. Write your note quick and dirty. Then it's there, and it's harder to forget. You can always grab a picture of it with your phone later, but anything to help pull back the memories of needing to fix or maintain something. Yeah, and one of the things that I've found in my travels is larger operations are actually way better at managing maintenance. Now, sometimes they don't always get done, but larger operations typically have a process that smaller operations or or owner-operator operations could benefit from. I know we hear process and we all kind of run to the other end of the table and say, I don't want any of that. But there are some processes that I've seen enacted in large operations where on a corn head, for example, there is a sheet that is in the same spot as the operator's manual that is what you need to do for your service interval, and it has a sign-off. And for a individual who is working on that operation, one of his missions as an operator of the combine, and they may have six combines, they may have 10 combines, but his mission is to go through and make sure that piece of paper is signed off. So that way they know that the proper maintenance and what needed to be done had been done on that head. And they do that preseason, they do it during season, they do it postseason. It's, it's a really, really good process. The downside is, is we think that it's another man's opinion, so we don't want to follow it because we're all renegades, right? So what about other types of heads? We've talked almost exclusively about corn heads. There's got to be similar conversation, but for other crops and other platforms. There are. Uh, draper heads, so kind of platform, platform heads, draper heads. Uh, the, the draper head is also extremely important to make sure you have some things right. Sickle sections and guards, whenever you pull that head out for the first time, make sure you're going through that entire sickle section. I mean, you want to look at every sickle on that, make sure all the guards are fully intact, because that's going to determine how good of of cut you're going to receive. And if you're sitting there in your field and you are getting ready to go into soybeans for the first time for that season and you see a whole bunch of ragged cut – that can probably be pulled back and say, well, my sickle sections, I, have, I haven't changed out any of my sickle sections throughout the season, or I didn't do it prior to uh, getting into this field for this first day in the field, and that, that could pose an issue. Uh, the other thing that I think about is belt tension. Uh, belt tension on draper heads is extremely important. If you don't have that set correctly, you're going to see a lot of slop in those belts, and you want to make sure that those are running in a, in a very good way so you're feeding that combine evenly because if not, you're going to pulse in. And the reason draper heads are so much prevalent, so much more prevalent today than they were even 20 years ago is because of how they feed. 
They put the heads in first, and they feed it nice and evenly. I said that earlier. Combine loves to be fed nice and even. When you start bringing in wads and pulsing, that's going to change how your processor and your rotor react to the crop. You can't you can't adjust for that, right? You can't adjust for the variability in, in bringing in crop. Whereas if you were able to feed it nice and evenly, now that processor is going to do the job that you want it to do. So belt tension... Uh, sickle sections, guards. The other thing is, is and, and this is goes for the same as corn heads, making sure all your gearboxes have oil in them. I've seen that cause a lot more issues than just failure in the field. Uh, you know, those things get hot. And when you're running in September, the, it's not good. So I won't say that word, but it will lead to it if we're not careful. And so... The we're not allowed to say that word in, in no four letter f words. Correct. Correct. It's it's the the <laughs> way we describe it is thermal event. That thermal is, event. Yes. And so, but that's something that we always have to be cognizant of from a safety aspect as well. So if we're not doing the maintenance and avoiding that painful, that's not only painful for the operator, not only painful for the farm, whether you're the operator of the farm or the owner of the farm or, you know, even even the individual that's out there fighting that thermal event. I mean, you, you introduce a lot of pain that could have been avoided because we check the gearbox oil. So just a, just a key recommendation. That's from, that's from a story. That's from experience. And so I've seen it. Uh, just make sure you're checking those things. So the last thing that I'll say on heads is, and I've seen this happen a lot, and this is something that I say that I probably shouldn't because I don't do a good job on this on our home operation. Get both of your heads out. Get both of your heads hooked up. Get all the drive, uh, all the PTO shafts hooked up. Get everything going. And make sure they run well before you even think about getting into the field. Both heads. It, it's going to save you pain later because the worst thing to do is to get out there and say hey I got to switch to beans today and you get out there you throw that header on and you've got a half a day or a day of work and you're frustrated because you wanted to be out there running if you do it today you're going to avoid that pain 100% agree especially I've watched it yeah. time and time again Especially if, you've, if you're queuing up an entire operation of, yeah, I got the drivers coming at noon because I'm going to make the switch over in the morning and they get there at noon and you're still working on it in the in the barn lot, not even moved to the field yet. You've got manpower you're wasting time. You bet. Yep. You bet. Trucks. I mean, that's you can, you can get everything lined up for a beautiful day of harvest and it can go to the wayside very quickly. So we've talked about gathering and feeding. Well, we haven't talked about feeding yet. Oh, so we talked a little bit about the uniformity of feeding. Uniformity of feeding—that's fair. But we haven't gotten into what what you need to maintain on your feeder house. But wait, there's more. There's more. Uh, so the feeder house is where the crop comes in, right? The, the, you have chains and slats, and really, when I think about the feeder house and things that that individuals forget about is around those feeding chains and the slats, right? Every year, you got to take a look at those because there are times where you may not have known this, but there may have been a rock that snuck in there. 
and it may have damaged your slats. And it goes back to that principle of feeding the combine evenly and smoothly. If you've damaged your slats, if you've damaged that that opportunity to not have an even feed, you're going to hurt yourself in the long run. So what's the detriment of that? If I don't have an even – what have you seen, I guess, is maybe the, the best way to ask, if a feeder house is not fed evenly or uniformly? You're going to fight settings like you've never fought them before. So you're always going to be tweaking or, as Jason Stoller mentioned on one of the last podcasts, futzing. Yes. You're going to be futzing. You're going to be tweaking. You're going to be managing settings on something you cannot correct out of setting the machine. And so that may be a good symptom awareness. If you've got a guy or if you've got a scenario where you don't think you've ingested any rocks or had anything like that happen, but you get into a field and you just cannot dial it in, none of your settings work, take five and investigate your feeder house and you may have damage there and that's what's causing the problem yeah i mean that's when i go through and i help diagnose settings on a combine typically guys all want to go to the rotor speed i got i gotta increase my rotor speed i gotta decrease my rotor speed that's not always the silver bullet and there are times where rotor speed concave clearance ground speed chaffer setting, sieve setting, fan speed, you're going to fight each and every one of those, and you're never going to find a resolution because the problem is starting before it even gets to that opportunity. So that's not always going to be the case when it has rock damage. Usually you'll hear that sucker, right? You're going to hear, hopefully you hear that rock go through. I mean, I'm sure you've put a rock through a machine or two. Yeah, you hear it. You hear it. Uh, You don't want to do that, but... uh, but that's that's a, something that you you can look at is if you can't dial the dialer in, you've got to figure out. Okay, I've tried every setting that I know to make an improvement. Nothing's working. I need to start looking forward and seeing if I'm doing something wrong up front versus what I'm doing once it enters in the machine. And what you're, I mean, and what you're trying to avoid is that big slug of stuff because you cannot set a machine for small amount of grain big slug of grain and have the separating and the threshing aspect happen at the same. They don't, they will not function the same because of the amount of fodder material that's going through it. Yeah. Can any of that, and I don't, I don't want to get in any trouble with anybody that I know may sell, you know, seed corn or anything like that. I'm just generally asking the question, but can some of that be from maybe a certain hybrid? Are there certain hybrids that just kind of like chaff kind of builds up in certain areas of maybe like a corn head and you'll see a slug of that kind of come through. Is that, is that, possible yeah i mean it's once again not to get not to get into the hybrid discussion from a a standpoint of which numbers do what because it changes all the time sure overall there are factors of how a hybrid is going to interact with a combine a combine is designed to be set to be optimized right so your hope your desire is that whatever hybrid you're pushing through that machine you're going to be able to find the the secret recipe of and I say secret because it's usually individuals need to find that that's not going to be given to you in a in a an app or an operator's manual even though we'll, we'll, even though I said you have to open the operator's manual on the settings you as an individual are going to need to find that sweet spot now there are times where you're talking about the the fluff right the 
the boiling that happens. Yeah, and so this is also a good opportunity to call out that maintenance and settings are two completely different things. Two completely different things. Your commentary on the operator's manual, heavy on maintenance. Heavy on maintenance. Let's separate those two things in our mind. Yep. Settings and and In an operator's manual, the maintenance, the maintenance is, and I'm not trying to be sacrilegious here, but in the combine world, the maintenance is the gospel. Now, I don't equate it to the same level I equate to the, the Matthew, Mark, Lucas, and Johns, right? That, for me, think, that has a different standing in my life. I think your point is made, though. Yes. But the settings are more of a, hey, start here and figure it out, right? It's more of a, I want you to have the opportunity to, to get to a really good spot. I don't want you to be running uh, 400 RPM in wheat or 1,000 <laughs> RPM in corn on your rotor. I want you to get close, but I don't want you to stop there. You as an individual have a unique experience in harvesting because it's your operation, it's your combine, it's your hybrid, it's your conditions. All of those are different variables that nobody else that's running that same machine is going to experience purely the same way you are. And it's going to change and fluctuate throughout the day, throughout the week, oh, yeah. throughout the season of the year, and year to year on the same farm, and different hybrids are going to fluctuate. So there is no, like you said earlier, silver bullet. There's a great starting point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then it's and then it's a dance and a chase. Yep. So, once again, we're, we're getting on a lot of tangents, and I love it. <laughs> uh, but to snap back the line to the feeder, the feeding and the feeder house, uh, I talked about the, the chains and the slats. The other thing that I would look at is uh, rock trap. This is one that I have multiple stories on. Of first day in the field, we grenaded a rotor because we didn't clean out the rock trap before getting into the field. So... At the end of the year, as, we, as we've talked about, one of the things that happens is we get tired. We pull that combine in from the last day. We're super excited. Every acre is done. We had a successful harvest of whatever year. We're able to go home and watch our football games on Thanksgiving. And we forget that there's this, this thing called a rock trap on the machine that at this point has been completely packed in with corn cobs, with different types of, of material, potentially some rocks. And then we go out on the first day and we don't open that up and knock it all down. Because what it'll do is it'll actually pack in so hard that it's going to create a mat. And instead of having a rock trap where that rock drops down, it's going to ride on top of the mat and ride into the rotor. And so that is something if you're listening today and you didn't open up your rock trap before you got into the field, go do it right now. If, if you're riding in the combine, open that puppy up. Make sure it's all cleaned out. Sometimes you're not going to find a single thing in there, but when you do find that, that mat, you're going to be so thankful that you went up there and you, you, took, I, you took something to it. I don't know if you, you've got a, a screwdriver in your toolbox or something of that sort, but make sure you clean that puppy out. And also, one key thing I think on that as well is the reverse effect that the latch to close the rock chap is working as well because the opposite can be true where it never closes. I have seen that too. I have seen that too. That's a little too personal to be a general recommendation. Yeah. Nope, that's definitely from experience. Yeah. 
That's where you see this nice swath of of ears on the on the ground it's as like, the combine's moving through. On. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of that's a lot of loss. So, but yes, you're 100 percent correct on that. I that is the the key thing to pull it open, making sure it is, then make sure it latches again. It's a very expensive wind rower. <laughs> that's for grazing. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's important when you do a search on Google for combine rock traps, and some of the first videos you see are combine soybean rock trap finds. So it's all the fun stuff that people have found. <laughs> any, any animals? Live live guests? None that are called out, but I, I will tell you, for me, from experience, um, you should be cautious of furry little friends that could probably get in there. Yeah, there's definitely... This, this is an interesting one, like... For our listeners, if you've got in our comments section or shooting a note and feedback to us, share your best stories. There's got to be some winners out there. <laughs> so I have one. Oh, oh boy. And I can tell this story. Uh, we were, uh, it was February, February, and I had a, a grower running in Western Canada. And as I mentioned earlier, if you run in November, you're upset. That's that holds for Western Canada. They don't like to be running in November because it gets cold and there's a lot of snow that comes down at that point. Most of them cannot run in November. When you're running in February in Western Canada, this is beyond unhappy. Something went wrong. And that year they had a very, very harsh winter. It came early and there were a lot of windrows left in the field, a lot of snow that came down. I was. I was actually traveling to Kansas at the time, and I land at the airport, and my phone just blows up. I've got three or four missed calls, three or four voicemails, uh, probably 15 different texts, and I'm thinking something went really wrong. Like, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, all right, who called me? How do, I, how do I resolve this situation at hand? And so I'm going through the texts, and I see somebody say, I have a product idea uh, for an improvement on the combines. And I was like, okay. And he's like, I've got a grower running right now. He's picking up swaths of canola in Western Canada. It's now showing us that we are having a lot of loss and we didn't know why. And we went back and looked at our top chaffer and it was covered in mice. So the mice had gone through the pickup head into the feeder house, into the rotor, and down on top of the, the top chaffer. And it was just covered. He's like, you guys have a sieve or a chaffer that would manage this? <laughs> Bit of a sticky situation. Yeah, yeah. So. Mice on top of the chaffer. Mice on top of the chaffer. Just That's loaded it down. That's a new one. I yeah. haven't heard of that one. It'll choke off air if you're not I can careful. believe that. <laughs> I can believe that. <laughs> All right, there's one to the listeners. So if you beat Caleb's story, well, there's some precision swag in it for you. So I think we're at a point where we're probably up to thresh and separate. Can we move to that? We, we can. All right. We can. So threshing and separating, that's where the magic happens. That's where you're that's where you're making sure that you're getting that the fodder or the material or the chaff and you're separating it from the grain, right? Whenever whenever you talk about you know, the, the saying is always, um, you know, we're going to now separate the chaff from the grain to get to the grain. So it's, uh, I don't know where I was going with that, but that's a saying, right? 
It is. It is now. It is. I mean, I've said it before. We got you know, you got to separate the chaff from the grain. So in threshing and separating, what we're trying to do is we're trying to separate thresh and separate the crop from the the trash or the residue. And so there's a lot of things that happen in that process, and it's extremely important that it's a well-maintained process because there's so many variables that happen in there in order for that to all work the way it is designed. When we start talking about threshing and separating, the, the first thing that we want to talk about is our, is our rotor, right? That's the, that's the big drum that rotates, that presses the, the, the crop against the concaves, Hopefully we're getting some grain on grain threshing. That's what we're we're after to try to achieve. But we want to make sure that everything on that rotor is functioning and is well maintained as we go into our first uh, day of, of harvest. And so the first thing I look at is our rasp bars or threshing elements. One of the things, I'll take a step back here. One of the things as you hear me talk, I mention multiple names for multiple items on a combine. My theory is nobody wanted to decide that this is a rotor and we just went with rotor, right? Everything has a different name. And I, and I, that's an ag thing. Like Shiv and a pulley. Yeah, it, it's an ag thing. There are other industries where you have one name for something and that is it. In our industry, we like to give like five names for things. You have rotor, processor, drum. You've got platform, draper. I mean, we love to give multiple names to things in ag. And if you go to Western Canada, it gets even like, it gets even crazier. Like they don't call radiators radiators. They call them rads. And so you have rads up there. You have radiators down here. I mean, we like to give multiple names to multiple things. So I digress. It's got to be a regional basis just because farming is so regional. It's so hyper-specific to the location you're in. So things just bubble up like, what is it? Soda? Pop, Coca-Cola, Cola, Coke. What's it's only soda. If you look on the back of a, of a, of a can, it says soda. It mm-hmm. does not say pop. Mm-hmm. That's mainly so I can poke at my northern family when they call it pop. But I'm like, look at the can. It says soda. It's not pop. So, so we know what camp he's in. <laughs> <laughs> can you... So it's not Coke then? No, no, no. <laughs> I even lived in the South for 10 years. It's not Coke. That's why I poked you. <laughs> <laughs> soda. Not soda pop. No. Soda. <laughs> um, so you've, you've uh, mentioned it a few times, keeping that process, that threshing process, full or at a consistent mm-hmm. r- feed rate. Extrapolate. So, I, I mean, we've talked about it quite a bit. Keeping it full... The combine wants, as I've said many a time, the combine wants to be fed evenly and smoothly, and it, you need to fill it up. Like, if you're running at a low capacity and you're just inching along in the field, you're not getting the full benefit of grain-on-grain threshing. Grain-on-grain threshing versus mechanical-on-grain threshing is going to give you the best grain quality. It's going to make sure you're getting the best thresh out of it overall. You want to fill that rotor up. The rotor needs crop. 
And so that's where you manage that by ground speed. That's where you manage that by your header intake. That's where you manage that by making sure your rotor speed is set correctly and your concave clearance because you want that all operating as a, as a factory, as a, as a very efficient factory to get that crop through. And you want to do it at an optimum rate, which is means evenly filling it up, making sure you're hitting a good capacity. Caleb, I think one of the things that you're saying grain on grain is what you're looking for with that scenario. Grain on metal or machinery is what you do when you want to grind something. That's that's a great that's a great a call grinder out. a grinder is grain on steel. You do not want that in your in your combine. You want grain on grain. That's a food mill. That's correct. Combine. Correct. When yeah. you see it getting grain on steel, that's when you're actually getting you're you're resizing and shredding and grinding your your material up. So is there a point in time to, like, if you go through maybe a stretch in a field where it typically drowns out and you just don't quite have, you know, the ear size or the, the, the ear development, that you will actually, like, then make an adjustment? So typically the first adjustment you're going to make, if it's a short stretch, push the hydro forward, get the ground speed, try to bring in as much as you can. That's going to be your fastest and easiest adjustment. Now, if it's a large area of the field that is drowned out and has, you know, has issues with, with uh, stalk size uh, or stalk diameter, has issues with ear size, that's where you're going to probably cut around it and then take a different approach or a different uh, settings towards that if you're, if you're willing to do that. Um, but most of the time, it's push the hydro down, get more ground speed, try to bring in more material. Second option, if terrain does not allow a faster machine speed what would your what would your second step be i'd probably cut it out at that point i and in cutting out corn which i shouldn't say because i don't believe in cutting corn you shell corn you cut beans but uh (laughs) as you can tell i'm very particular about my word choices (laughs) um i i would probably at that point take a, a different strategy of where i would try to figure out how to get the the most optimal setting for the the good crop that I'm in and then try to figure out a setting for the the poor crop or at that point it's also a a business decision how much time am I going to take to pull out a hundred bushel of corn if I'm still if I'm still going to harvest it and I'm still going to get you know maybe I increase my loss to to three bushel instead of one bushel which I don't want but at the same time is it going to save me time and effort to get through this faster, I'm going to make that decision. It's an operation decision at that point if you can't make a quick and easy uh, settings change in order to overcome that. So I'm going to rabbit trail down that. Do you have a guideline or a heuristic for how you make decisions in season of how long an activity is going to take you versus the value it would return you in yield? We don't have anything that's, that's uh, I would say, published or or agreed upon. Uh, most of the time it's gut decisions. It's me chatting with dad or grandpa chatting with dad or, you know, having the conversation up front of this is what I'm going to do. Does it seem like a good idea? Uh, and so it's, it's leveraging the experience of those that came before me because they've been there many more times than I have. That's, that's what we rely on. There's really, uh, there's fast math you can do in your head, but overall, when you're running and you're trying to cover X amount of acres in a short amount of time, you are presented with choices every day. And so you've got to make those choices quickly and you've got to make those choices confidently. And, uh, you got to, 
that confidence is where I was at, I was going at is didn't know is there a sing, um, silver equation, not a silver bullet, but a silver equation you guys have gone back to or no, it's just communal decision making based on as many minds and experiences you can gather. Yeah, it's it's communal decision making. I mean, my and once again, I've got uh, a huge blessing in the fact that I've got two individuals in our operations that have have had three times the amount of seasons I've put in, uh, and they've you know they've learned and they've experienced it and they've had to make those hard decisions and they've had to make harder decisions than I've ever had to make because we have bigger machinery, we have more opportunities to to get things off faster, plant things faster, till faster. I mean, we're our window is is definitely feels like it's shrinking, but it's not because we keep improving the capacity of all of our machines. So having their guidance for me has been, uh, I learn every day that I'm out there. So that's, that's where I get to bounce the, the thought process off them and say, Hey, if, if it's not making enough, uh, I'm just going to push. I mean, there was a field last year where I had the hydra. I was running at seven mile an hour through the entire field because it was 76 bushel corn we were going to fight settings the whole time. We got it to where we were dialed in somewhat, but I wouldn't say that it was my it, – it's not the field that I would go out and take somebody to and be like, hey, come here and count the loss out here. This is why we run this combine. It's not the field I'm going to do that at because I, I knew that I was losing out the back. At that point, I, I made the conscious decision of I'm going to push through this fast because I'm not returning. I need to make sure that we're – out of this field as quick as possible. The downside was that was our last field of the year, and so it never is fun to to end on that note. End on that note, but at the same time, it was one of those learning opportunities for me. Of yeah, let's let's make the decision now. We're just gonna we're just gonna push through it. That decision is never easy to make, and their variables are always different. And the process to to weigh the cost analysis is generally something that you don't have hours of time to figure out you've got you and, and it's a constant dynamic situation based on the weather and the the people that you have lined up to help you at that time if everybody's lined up to help you you got the equipment all ready to roll taking the time to, to have a truck sit for three hours while you work on an area is just not like that decision making process is is constantly fluid and so it it's i'm with caleb where it's like it's it's a tough decision and there's there's no right answer it's yeah, we got this, this, this. We're going to make a decision off of variables that we have at that point in time. Yeah. And you have to, at that point, you the best option is to make the decision and then run with it. Because what really sets back of an operation is when you make the decision and then you second guess it and then you change it and then you second guess it again. That, to me, is has my, been my experience that that really sets back the whole operation. If you, You're going to cost far more time when you make the second decision rather than making the first decision, unless there's some dynamics that really do change the situation. And, and there's decisions that you make that are going to be wrong. You, you gotta, you're going to get it wrong. You're, you're going to make wrong choices. Everybody is going to do it, no matter how many years of experience you have or how little of experience you have. I mean, the nice thing with the years of experience, you've got, you've got data to back it up in your mind, but still, you're going to make a wrong decision. It's a matter of what's best for the operation, what's best for you personally, and going forward with that. And at the end of the day, live live humbly and, and pray for grace because that's 
that's what we need in this environment. That's, that's the thing that, you know, as I, as I've worked in agriculture, I love the, the people and I love how amazing everybody across every area that I've been to, everybody is so nice and, and so loving and, and caring and all fighting for the same goal. But at the same time, we'll go to the coffee shop and talk about how that guy messed up over there. Right? <laughs> we all do it. And, and that's something that as we make decisions, we also have to live humbly and know that, yeah, he did that. But two years ago, I did this. Yeah. Nobody remembers that two years ago. <laughs> I don't do it. I'll, I, I'll be honest. It's, I'm, I'm in the same boat. So. No, that's, why, that's part of why I asked some of those questions is those decisions, the taking the time to make the right decision because I'm going to commit to it, but also being aware of changing situations and knowing when to rethink to new situations. Those are, like you said, those are hard. They're fluid, dynamic. They're never easy, and they're never the same. That's the part that I that that's the nugget that I like. That's to the reason into. that we like harvest so much, but more so than planting, because planting is always that decision. Planting is never a a rock solid. Here we go, harvest. You generally have at least a time frame where ah, we got time to we can sit in the combine cab for at least a couple hours and feel like we're doing the right thing. Planting, you you never really. I think most time when planting, you never f- truly feel like you got the comfortable. That's because you're. It's so important, so critical, and it's so changing. The time to slow roll the decision making so you can make more speed during the execution. You feel like you can do that more often in harvest than in spring. You right. feel like you cannot slow roll the decision making. You have to decide fast and move fast. And it's so critical. The decision making the mistake in planting is something you live with all year. You see it all year. All year. Yeah. Especially when you do a buy highway. Yep. That one, that one field by the highways, the one field that's always, always there. <laughs> always. Right on 136. <sighs> um, explain some of the maintenance. What does a poorly maintained grass bar or tines in that aspect, how does that portray itself as you look at, as guys are looking at the grain quality and threshing abilities, what are they looking for when they see wear on those pieces? So – in terms of raspars and tines, uh, probably the two biggest failure modes that you're going to see if you have poorly maintained uh, rotor elements are going to be, number one, your capacity. Your capacity is not going to be as, as good as it once was. It's kind of like all of us getting older, right? We, uh, we aren't as good as we once were. Uh, but that's... That you're you're going to see your capacity suffers. You're not going to be able to run at a at a higher rate of speed. You're not going to be able to to uh, thresh as many bushel per hour as as you would like. And you're you're going to be governed by that before you start introducing losses out the back because you're not going to have the uh, the appropriate amount of of agitation, the appropriate amount of threshing happening up front. So you're going to see it essentially expel out of the rotor. And uh, you, then you're you're gonna have to pull back the hydro. You're gonna have to leave it in the rotor for a little bit longer, and try to get it out. When in reality, once again, those are those are things you can't manage with settings. Uh, a poor rasp bar and a poor tine 
there, you can't change rotor speed to overcome that. That's that's something that is going to you're going to fight, and you're going to probably have to have a, a slower ground speed to overcome it. So, uh, typically with a Raspar, uh, every every company, uh, every OEM out there is going to give you an idea of when your Raspar or threshing element needs to be replaced. They have gauges. The old school style was to take a pencil and put it down between the, uh, the, the threshing elements or the, the raspbar elements. And if you could see the top of the pencil, that's when you needed to replace it. Uh, now, in, in newer style, everybody has a different type of threshing element. So they provide you these gauges of, hey, when you start to see this wear, that's when you need to replace this and, and put a new one on. Same thing goes with, with tines, right? So different rotors have different types of elements on them. Tines are, are intended for agitation uh, in the separation. They want to make sure they're getting into that crop mat and agitating that crop out. As the rotor is, is spinning and you hit that optimum tip speed where you have the centrifugal force expelling the grain out of the cage, you want to make sure that those tines are agitating correctly so they're, they're, they're roughing up that crop mat so they're shaking loose any of that stuff or separating any of the grain out of the cage and keeping the, the residue or, or junk or fodder in the cage. And so when you have a poorly maintained tine, you're losing that aspect. You're not getting the optimal uh, agitation. And so that also, most OEMs give you a gauge at what time you need to replace that. But uh, if you're pulling your combine out after three seasons or four seasons and you're taking a look, those are that's something you really want to pay attention to. The other thing with the threshing elements and the tines that is extremely important to keep in mind is is your rotor balance you have to keep that rotor balanced uh, because that when you start to unbalance that rotor that's going to put a lot of stress on the 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 drive of that rotor you're going to put stress on the bearings of that rotor uh, so you have to maintain a, a proper rotor balance. So when you're replacing threshing elements, when you're p- replacing tines, oftentimes uh, they'll come in pairs or in threes. And so you need to pay attention when you're replacing those, putting them in in the place that is recommended so that way you do not throw your rotor out of balance. It's not intended. They don't give you three so you have extras. They give you they give you three so you put them all in the rotor at the same time regardless of if that other tine has worn down to a point where it needs to be replaced or that other element has worn down to where it needs to be replaced because it's trying to keep it that rotor in a, in a good balance that i've seen out of rotor balance uh, or rotors that are out of balance cause more pain uh, without anybody knowing like that's that's a hidden that's a hidden failure mode because you just you you don't know about it until it's too late and you, you see a lot of extra damage that could have been avoided by putting that rotor into balance. And most of the time, most of the time people can feel it. You can feel if you've been around your machine long enough, you'll know that that rotor doesn't feel right. That's something's going on there. You can feel it in the cab. You can hear it, but that's something that is, is extremely important when you're, when you're playing around with that rotor, make sure it's always stays balanced. Yeah, you'll definitely generally it's it's the that doesn't sound right. Is that something I should do? I need to stop now, or do I need to stop this winter? Yeah. Um, and generally, what happens is you forget about it till next spring yep. or till next next fall when you fire it up. It's like, ooh, that that doesn't sound right. I forgot that was loose. That's that's always the. I mean, that is always the case. Get to that point at the end of the season where 
you are overlooking things because you want to get done. And so it, back to our... I don't know if I'd say they're overlooking. They're making the management decision the, and, and saying, I, I can't optimize for performance or maintenance or longevity of equipment. I have to manage the business that, that's a much more appropriate way of saying it. I was more looking at myself and saying I overlook it. Because, <laughs> that's the only you know, way you can. I'm a, I'm a big critic of myself. So it's like Caleb overlooked that. And that's it, why we you have to tell issue. yourself to keep going. You do. You have you to tell you, like, cause it's the conversation. Like, I, I know that's a problem and I know I should stop and fix it, but I'm, I am physically business and emotionally too tired to take the time to go back and fix it. And I've got, I've spent, it's been, I started in March. And I've been running hard since March, and we're in November. This is the end of the fall. And so mental state of the mental employees. State of the everybody's. Owner-operator included. Mental state of the employees is a yep. very important aspect. Yep. And mm-hmm. we're cold. It's getting cold. I'm tired. I want to go home. Yes. Yeah. And so it gets to that point of you're just going to run with it. So I think, But I think that's the, the – when you talk about the balance of it, I – you can definitely hear it. And you can even feel it sometimes with just certain machines will pick up dust inside the rotor on the inside, and you can feel it, and it's like – uh, I think it's just dust this time around, yeah. and, you, and you keep waiting for it to to settle back out again. And that kind of that kind of goes into the next aspect. It, it, you talk about the drum, you talk about the the elements, and you talk about the balance of it. Well, there's the the cage around it, the concaves, the separator grates, the separation area. They don't ever break, do they? <laughs> <laughs> I've replaced more than I would care to say. Yes. It is. It is. Uh, those are. Those are extremely critical to make sure they're in good working order. They're extremely critical to make sure that you did not ingest a rock because, once again, you ingest a rock, uh, you ingest a chain. There have been many a fun things that have been ingested into a combine that, that can cause havoc. But you start damaging concaves, that's where you start to really, really see an impact in how your machine performs. So let's stop here a second. Rock is kind of what we've defaulted to for ingesting, right? Like, don't want to ingest a rock can cause problems. I'll throw out fence posts. Fence posts are a bad deal. What else? Typically fence posts. Typically fence posts, though. The nice thing with fence posts is you catch them with the header. And they'll stop your header bring it all the way through. You'll get get the slip clutches going, and and you, you will stop. That's that's always a bummer when you when you run into a post. It'll it'll stop you, but it typically doesn't get into the machine. Uh, the uh, what was probably the the most creative thing that I've seen. Uh, section on a platform, a section going through that'll yep. do it. That'll destroy. Uh, so the sickle section, mm-hmm. actual cutoff section, that'll do it. Oh, so like it comes loose and basically then it breaks off. It though. comes through or just it goes straight through. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. I've seen a a ball receiver uh, that has gone through a machine. So I don't know how it got through it. I just have seen this, so I, I I will say that I wasn't in the field when it happened, but I saw the aftermath of the ball receiver that made it from feeder house over the rock trap through the rotor out the chopper, and so there was a lot of there was a lot of repair after that one. Is it a struggle with field flags? Uh, I have not personally. I could see that happening though. I I'm willing to bet these have made it through the combine, and maybe my dad has never had to stop because of this, but I bet we've ingested a few golf balls. (laughs) (laughs) 
And I would like to say that's not me, but when you label your golf ball TH, it's pretty incriminating. <laughs> <laughs> There's no working around that one. All right, so let's jump back into cleaning. What else do we need to be uh, aware of when it, we talk about the maintenance elements around cleaning? So we'll take a step back because we're not done with rushing and separating yet. Oh, great. Okay. I, I just keep adding things I, I thought on. we were working toward... We're getting so closer. So concaves. Concaves are still a part of threshing and separating. Okay. Right? So in concaves, the, the big thing around that is, is zeroing them out. So zeroing out concaves is one of those things that we we have always talked about at combine clinics. And if you've been to a combine clinic, if, you, if you've participated in one of those, you've heard this phrase, zeroing out a concave. concave. The reason that it's so important is back to our discussion around fighting settings, not being able to dial it in, having issues that you can't figure out why you're having issues. The concave leveling is one of those ones that will completely change your machine and will allow you to make setting changes that will throw it way out of whack. Like you would, you would take a logical approach of, I cannot get the entire cob threshed. My logical approach would be that I need to pinch the concave closer or I need to speed the rotor up or slow the rotor down. I can't get this cob threshed. I would change concave clearance and I still have partial thresh cobs coming out. I don't know why. I'm fighting it. I change speed and still have partial thread, uh, partial cobs coming out. The reason that that is happening is, is you have effectively, when your concave is not level, you have effectively created a pinch point in your rotor. You want everything to be running through that rotor evenly and smoothly, as we talked about before. But when a concave is pinched up closer to the front or pinched up closer to the back and it's not level across, you are creating pinch points that are going to hurt your settings, and it's going to pull down your efficiency of your machine. You're not going to be able to achieve capacity because you're going to be trying to shove crop into an area where the concave is saying, I'm not, I'm too close to this RAS bar. I can't get this capacity through. And so no matter what change you make, you're always going to have a pinch point in there. It's always going to cause setting issues. So this goes back to your food mill. Yes. Your grain mill. Your grain mill is context. So you're back to less on grain on grain, and you're back to, to pinching stuff off and putting steel against grain yeah. at that point. So I think, and you're correct. And around that scenario, then Caleb, I think is a big thing. Um, I've seen it happen before, where the the adjustments for these electronic machines, where you're actually having a, you're making the changes from the cab. Uh, there's the old style where you did it on the out on on the machine and inside the cab, but both of those are a reading and a in a sensor reading that you're looking at. And mm -hmm. I've had multiple machines where the concave setting mechanism was broken on the top end or the bottom end. And so you're making adjustments to it. And it's like something just does not work. I cannot get this thing to, to fine tune. And it's actually the fact that you're actually adjusting the, what you think is a rock solid concave setting. And it actually is still moving even though, because the bracket's broken Yeah, around it. So that's, and you don't notice it until you're halfway through the years. Like what is going on with this thing? Yeah. And, and, and back to that point of halfway through the year, one of the things that as we as we go through our season and we introduce a lot of different types of crop material, a lot of different uh, uh, opportunities for that machine, if you slug the machine, 
my recommendation is get out and check concave clearance because there are yep. times where you'll run the back half of harvest and your concave will not be leveled out. It will not be zeroed out to where you because because we slugged something. Because we sent you big, slugged it. Yep, we sent something heavy. We had a feeder house issue. We slugged sand that big old wad of stuff through, and yep. now you've got something that went bang bang in the back. Yep, and, and so you all hear it. The next season you pull it out, and you have no idea because you don't remember that slug. You don't remember you know having that type of an issue, and you're still sitting there like, why can't I set this machine? And that slug, mainly what your mind mindset was when that slug went through was it went through. It went through. Thank goodness it went through. <laughs> I'm not digging the combine out right now. <laughs> For those of you that are listening and have never had the pleasure, the absolute pleasure to dig out a slug combine, I highly recommend you get the opportunity to at one point in time. I think that's what they call a character builder. It is a character builder. <laughs> it is 100% a character builder. It's both sides. It's the work of doing it, and it's the shame of having done it. It's true. It's true. It's both sides. Everybody slugs combine, though. It's true. It does. It happens. I, even if you say, I've never slugged a combine, I, I know you have slugged a combine. So if you're sitting there in your truck right now, and you're <laughs> like, Look me in the eyes. I've when never you slugged say a that. combine. <laughs> you, are, you are not only lying to yourself, but you're lying to everybody. Either that or you need to push the hydro further and, and get a little bit more you're, capacity. You're a little more. Yeah. yeah. You're running too conservative you're, in you, life. Yeah, too conservative. Take a little risk. <laughs> <laughs> it's good for you. It's character building. Yeah. Yeah, try to hit that 7,000 bushel an hour. Or you have way too big of a combine for the head you're running. That's true. That's true. And then you probably run a challenge on the other side of keeping it full and level often enough to make good efficiency and accurate settings on those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. I mean, that's that's where ground speed plays into a huge portion of it. Header size. You got to have size. the right header size for the right for the right op- op- operation. We talk about how planners is a high performance machine that's running at peak performance as far as simulation, all those things that go into it. Combines is a logistical guessing or logistical plan that you build from the size of head that you're running, the acres that you run, the size of machine that you have on that running those things, and then coupled with the grain handling facility that goes that goes along with it. Harvesting is a is a complete balancing act across the entire system as opposed to a running a planter which is getting a seed in the ground at, at peak performance. You're not necessarily after peak performance and harvesting as much as you are the balanced approach to making everything work. Yeah, I mean logistics wise is most of the time, in most operations, logistics are your governor. Yep. Your combine is not your governor. Yep. So you've got class 9 combines out there. You've got class 8 combines out there. There are a lot of times where an individual is running a class 9 combine, and he's not even going to see a, a portion of the value out of that machine because he can't pull the grain away. you got to be able to have the downstream logistics. If you're sitting in the field with a full tank of grain waiting on a, a a grain cart or a catch cart, you're waiting on a truck to come back to the edge of the field. That's where you got to think about, okay, how do I optimize this machine? What do I need to do in the future in order to make sure that I'm not losing time, that I'm harvesting at peak performance, and we have a consistent logistics plan? There's a lot of operations that I've been to that have figured this out, and when they figure it out, it is a well-oiled machine. It is when, when that guy is running, he knows I don't have to ever stop. 
he would he would probably even get to the point where if he could figure out how to get that like uh you know how the jets fly over and they fill up the the big cargo carrier with fuel mm-hmm. if we could figure that out with combine that guy would be in heaven because he's like I never have to stop I'm just going to keep going I'll never stop I'll just next 72 hours are booked for me let's go I I got a story for that one yeah so growing up it was the first time my dad ever had me running the wagons. We were close enough. It was on the home farm there. So we were running back and dumping into the dryer system on our farm. And first time out on my own, dad's running the combine. And he's repeatedly telling me, just be careful. Go as slow as you need to. Just be careful with everything. And for about three and a half hours straight, I sweated and ran and moved as fast as I could because I didn't ever want dad to have to stop. Yeah. Right, and I finally, I pull up and I'm right on time and that, that, that unload auger comes out and I'm just like so close and this is great. And all of a sudden the lights flash and he slams the brakes on the combine. And he says, I'm done. Climbs out and he's waving his hands at me and everything. I'm like, what, what did I do wrong? I thought I was there on time. And he's like, I got to use the restroom. You got to let me stop. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, he went, he went, uh, he's like, I kind of filled up on coffee. I figured I'd have plenty of breaks first time out. <laughs> well, the newer combines they have uh, seat switches to where you can't you can't do that while you're still running. You uh. get in some mile long passes with the older combines. <laughs> you don't have to stop for that. <laughs> you just walk out on the on the deck extension. Bring us back in, Hans. No, yeah. get back in again. Uh, but back to your your point of the concrete clearance. All those are things. That the the balance machine. In your, we talked about logistics and all that goes into making yeah. sure the machine is running at the setting that you want it to run at, where you can achieve grain performance, machine performance, and uh, and and residue and qual. I mean, separating throughout the whole process. And we're all going back to concave balanced and and set uh, zeroed out correctly. Yeah, that's right. I mean, making sure that 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 is a well-oiled machine inside the machine is is so important because it, it'll make or break your season. Uh, and that's, that's the thing with a combine is it's got so many moving components, so many mechanical processes happening that from a, a maintenance standpoint, making sure you're putting your best foot forward on that first day in the field, that you the, the time and investment you make ahead of time is going to save you days, days, hands down. I, I guarantee it. If you, if you take an extra two hours prior to season to go through something a little bit more in detail, it could save you a couple of days from something major happening. And that's either from the breakdown or just increased performance going through the field. Yeah. Yep. Caleb, anything else on threshing and separating as we're talking maintenance aspects or things to look for on that? Uh, outside of what I would say is your normal maintenance. Make sure you're, make sure you're greasing. Uh, and, I'll I'll wrap this this whole conversation up with the same statement as I'm going to make now. But those grease zerks, they're there for a reason, and for you to it, it is there to make sure that your machine runs well. Those hourly maintenance, ten, fifty, and we're getting good. I mean, in in the newer machines, they're like you got you got like two ten hour, and you have four hundred hour, and that's it. And like from what it used to be, like that's a dream. That's a dream because you spent twenty minutes greasing the the, tw- the ten hours daily. Yeah, but then a- you still don't do it. 
You still don't do it. <laughs> so the thing is about that, though, Those is the ornamental. Ornamental. <laughs> the, I think the one thing that causes some problem for some guys, and this is just, you were talking about it here, so let's, let's yeah, touch let's on it, is that it. the grease is pulling the manual out. And I just encourage you guys, for if you have a tough time remembering which ones are your tw- 10 hours, which ones are your 50 hours or 100 hours, take a Sharpie. Go right next to the grease circ and write it on the grease circ because yeah. you're going to walk around the machine. And if you have it written on there, you'll more than likely remember, oh, yeah, that one's a 20. There's another, I have another 10 somewhere. Where's you? Oh, there it says it's a 10 hour. Yeah. Those just make a big difference. I hate writing on machines. I hate Sharpies on paint and stuff. That's just a, a sin in my, my world. But around grease circs, I'll, I'll accept it because of of the uh, the importance of what, just a re- visual reminder. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, and most machines nowadays they have they have the nice decal on there that tells you where your where your ten, your fifties, your hundred hours, your four hundred hours are, and so those are those are great guides. But to your point, I mean, paint markers that's our friend in our operation. We'll we'll, we'll different color it. paint marker for each. Oh yeah, angle. yeah, we'll we'll paint marker everything up. I right mean, next to the grease it's hard to miss. Those paint those hourly markers are sometimes stuck on the head and those are over here. On oh the, yeah, on the feeder house, and it's just. It's easy for guys to miss it. Yep. But then again, rely on the operator's manual. <laughs> cheaper than the alternative. It's it, is. Hans. it is. It's yeah. cheaper than the alternative. So, yeah, I mean, outside of outside of that, I would say threshing and separating, uh, just continue to maintain that rotor, take care of that rotor. The rotor will take care of you. We get down into the cleaning system. That's where all the grain drops. And so that's where you want to make sure you're getting a good sample, make sure you're getting all the trash out. So those the, the two things that you, you really want to look at there is chaffer and sieve from a louver standpoint, making sure everything, all the louvers are still there. There's no damage to that. I mean, cobs will damage louvers if you're not careful. Opening it up, closing it down, it'll bend them back. I mean, there's there's a lot of things that those louvers, they're, they're very lightweight louvers, and they do an amazing job in, if they're set correctly. But watching that, because if, you, if you're missing a section of louvers, you're just putting a gaping hole down to your clean grain elevator. And so you want to make sure you're maintaining that as you're, as you're going through uh, your, your early season maintenance is pull those suckers out, take a look at them. Are the louvers all there? Yeah, great. Put them back in and, and you're ready to rock and roll. But if you're missing louvers, it might be an opportunity to replace that chaffer and sieve. And along with that is make sure that they move full range from open to close. Yeah, Because there's definitely. a lot of times again, they get stuck and you can kind of tell that they're you can make sure that that's got the full range of motion from wide open to close. Yeah, yeah. And, and to your point earlier about everything's in the cab now, uh, that goes back to calibrations. Yep. Uh, and calibrate with two people. It uh, is much easier with two people. Don't don't yeah. calibrate on your own. I know some of us like to do that stuff on our own, and I'm, I'm one of those people, but having two people to be actually putting eyes on it and having a person in the cab uh, it is wonderful. The other thing you could do, and I haven't tried this, this just became an idea for me. I have a nanny cam for my daughter. I'm going to put that thing back there and, and do the, do the calibration. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Why not? You still like to make those like, Ooh, I should have remembered that. And you're going through your maintenance. You like to find those while you're by yourself. And that's right. That's right. I think it's important to call out too, that it doesn't take somebody necessarily with a mechanical engineering degree to be your second set of eyes, right? You can kind of coach somebody on what to, what to I mean, look oh, for. Oh yeah. Right? He just said an any cam would work. So, I mean, well, but I mean, that's kind of him <laughs> duplicating his eyes, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you're right. You're hundred percent correct. You can easily give, I mean, a set of second eyes is what you're looking for. 
Yeah, it doesn't have to be somebody that's actively involved on the farm no. every day, right? I no, guess is just having at. somebody yeah. with eyes on it to make sure, hey, it, it moved yeah. properly and, and you're getting a good reading. And most most modern machines now will tell you, hey, calibration failed because we didn't get full range of motion. Good point. But it's still it's still good to have another set of eyes on it. And that that goes across the machine, right? We are We are now in a very blessed position to where we can make a whole bunch of changes from the cab. That sometimes limits us from getting out and going around our machine. That's it, it, and it's not it's not a bad thing. This is great. We're more effective. We're more efficient. But at the same time, we used to have to walk around our machine a lot more than what we do now. And so that's where pre-harvest comes in into play with belts, chains, bearings, uh, rotor elements, feeder house chains. All these things we're talking about. There's so much more importance today than there was 30 years ago because we were out of the cab so many times 30 years ago to make adjustments and to, and to, to actually have a successful harvest season that now we're, we're somewhat, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, we're spoiled. pampered. Pampered a little Is bit. Is pampered the right? Uh, I mean, Mike. Spoiled. 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 Blessed. 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 But pampered's it, probably not. We still have rough hands, so we're not pampered. <laughs> but we, we are a little spoiled from what my grandpa had to do, right? Right. But it gives you more tools and more options to not uh, to continue to make changes and adjustments on the fly without having to sacrifice that performance optimization. Of you can still you don't have to wait make yep. that choice of well I can't stop now because I got a truck back on the way I need to keep him full and you keep the dryer full I can't stop to make this change now we can make those change so we can both optimize for performance yeah. and operate optimize the operation. But that does point to what you were just highlighting. Every time we do get out, because we don't have to get out as often, it's more important than it ever was before. Each individual time you get out and you do one of those activities, it adds more. It lends more importance to it. Yeah, agreed. I'm guessing your grandpa also walked to school uphill both ways. Uh, he did not. It wasn't uphill both ways, but I actually know where he walked to school. It's it's just down the road from our house. It's not there anymore, but there was a one one-room schoolhouse. And so he can't tell me that he walked uphill both ways because... Grandpa, I know where you walked. I know where he went to school. So he, he lost that one when they told me the story of where he went to school. So, Caleb, uh, when you're talking about separating and stuff, what part should guys be looking at as far as a fan? Because we're you look at our separating system or our, our cleaning system. You're talking mm -hmm. about the louvers and, and chaffers. Um, what about the fan aspect? Because that's another big key piece of it. That really is. Uh, the fan, for the most part, we, we have what's called a squirrel cage around it. Uh, you want to you inspect the fan before you get into season. Make sure that that fan is, is intact. That's first and foremost. I have seen it in operations where the fan blades uh, had sap on them. Okay. Uh, so they, they got, all, you know, that it's sappy material yep. from the, from corn and they, they bind up and you have, uh, issues because of that. And so, uh, taking a look at that, making sure it's cleaned out, making sure that you don't have the sap plus the soybean dust on top of it that is dampening your air. That's going to be extremely important. And then also you have your, your mechanical side, which is your bearings, your, your grease points, your drive, uh, on that fan. Everything there, uh, just put eyes on, make sure you're hitting it towards the 
the recommendation of the of the uh, OEM, and, and you should be good there. I mean, that also comes into play when we start talking belts and chains. Fan's a great example. Rotor's a great example. Inspect all your belts. Make sure you're not seeing any pieces missing or any splits in that belt. Uh, chains, making sure that you have the, the proper tension and you're not mm-hmm. seeing any flat spots in that, right? They're rusted out. You need yeah. to... You need to manage that a little bit, but those are all those are all aspects of when we have the mechanical approach. You you just got to keep eyes on those things. Yep. So I do have we there was a situation where I was uh, uh, driving out to the field, and the main drive belt uh, a chunk flew off of it. This is how quickly something can go from working great to not working at all. I get a call and I and it's. Hey, I just saw a portion of that main drive belt fly off. How much time do I have? Can I make it to the edge of the field? And I'm like, you're about 15 seconds. And sure enough, in about 10 seconds, everything was shut down because those belts, I mean, if you're not properly maintaining them or, you know, in some situations, you know, we hope that it doesn't happen, but there there are bad runs of belts out there and it'll put you down in a heartbeat if you lose a main drive belt or a, a belt in general. I mean, chopper fan any of those things are so critical that you just got to keep maintaining those and keeping eyes on them all right so with that caleb i think have we kind of wrapped up cleaning yeah i think so I all think right so um i think we're up to i think stage five and that's grain handling take it away yeah <laughs> no grain handling is one of those things where you know you've done all the work you've done absolutely all the work to get the crop fed in You've done a great job in getting it separated and thresh. You've, you've cleaned it. You've got a great sample. Now you want that grain to go to where you're going to hold it until you put it in the in the grain cart or the truck or, or however you're getting it away from the field. And that's where we want to manage now our mechanical action on the grain. This is one, too. Sorry not to cut you no, off. No, you're fine. I, I feel like this is where, you know, Hans and, and – Hans, you probably have some experience just, you know, being around the family farm and stuff too, even pre-precision. But I feel like in my experience at Precision, we can talk with some intelligence because we see our components interact with the clean grain elevator. So this is one where, you you know, I absolutely love your input on combines and your experience on combines too, Caleb. But I think we can all kind of chip into a little bit on this conversation. That's good because um, I was feeling like I was talking too much. So <laughs> That's not what I was trying to say, so please don't. It's what I, that's what I internalized it, Tyler. The guest is supposed to do the majority of the speaking. <laughs> we have you on to share your knowledge. <laughs> okay, so help me out then. Where do we start? Uh, clean grain augers and tailings auger. Uh, so if you've been running your machine a while, uh, you want to make sure you get out and you take a look at those because with an auger, as we all know, augers wear. And when you have wear on your auger, what happens? Crack your corn. You crack your corn. Why? Because you're getting sharper. You're you're also limiting your capacity because you're taking that diameter and you're moving it down, right? That's how it wears down. The diameter of the auger decreases. And so now we have two things that are really fighting against us. We, we, we've got a sharp edge. And we've got a smaller diameter, so we're losing capacity. We're grinding corn, and now we aren't getting it to the elevator in time for it to pull up. And so when you do those things, then you can have an issue of where you're going to build up in your clean grain if you're running at a high capacity, and you're going to choke off your air 
and you're going to have more issues upstream that you didn't have before. So it, it kind of compounds itself. That's that's the other thing about combines is, is you could have an issue in one process, and it's going to affect three processes before it. And so with this situation, what we want to do is we want to make sure that we have properly maintained augers. Uh, there's these wonderful poly flighting uh, kits that are out there now that you can actually put down in there to make sure you don't wear as much or they're easily replaceable. I personally have not used them. I know that there are some guys that swear by them. I know there's some guys that say don't use them. But overall, there are ways, instead of just flipping out a new auger, that there are ways that you can you can manage that wear. But before you get into season, make sure you take a look at that and make sure you're not seeing those sharp edges or that reduced diameter or else that could cause some issues down the line. Have you seen fairly consistent wear rates year in and year out across your acreage? Or are some years drastically more aggressive on the wear rate of those kind of wear items? Paul, a little bit to your point on that, I don't think that there is a – a crop is is very dependent on that, and year over year it's not always the same. I mean, think of the down corn this year. You take down corn issue and you start running dirt through a machine uh, with down corn, you're going to wear out augers faster. So yep. it's not a it's not a year over year same consistency on it. It's going to be different from – depending on how many acres, depending on what you – what type of crop it is. Do you do mostly dry corn versus wet corn? Characteristics of corn makes a big difference on how much wear you get out of it. And soybeans, how do, how yep. dirty are your soybeans? How dirty are soybeans? So dirt aspect of it, whether corn's down. If you put a down corn reel on it, guys will tell you, you put a reel on a on a combine, you're going to replace the augers at the end of the year if they weren't already. You shorten them by a year, almost automatically. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I would say no. There's not a great context to which one is more wearing point than the other one. Yeah, and I, I would also, uh, I mean, to your point, crops. Crops, there, there's different abrasiveness. I mean, rice. Rice is just a brutal piece. That'll eat a combine in a heartbeat. Uh, that's where stainless steel comes into play. That's where the rice kits come into play. So, you, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different dynamics that come into that. Um, but, yeah, I would say, you know, you start to ingest more dirt. You're bringing in more abrasive particles in, in general. Uh, all of those are things that will result in wear. Caleb, as you're looking through, there's a lot of, I mean, the auger is one piece of it. The flighting, the, the boot around the auger is also an, another piece of wears on the outside. Uh, basically, mm-hmm. the discharge, primarily what I see is where it goes into the clean grain elevators, where you see a lot of that. Yep. Um, so that's just a one more piece. The, the housing around your auger is as much of a wear item piece as the actual housing or the auger piece itself. Yeah, I would and always take a look at those before you start your season. The the So that allows you to do a couple of things. Open that up, inspect that boot. Make sure it's make sure that you're not seeing where. I mean, if you're seeing a gap in that boot, that means you have crop coming out of that gap. Especially for our friends in Western Canada who are running canola, I'm telling you, anywhere there is a small gap, canola will bleed out of that machine. Bleed. It's like water. It's like water. So making sure that that boot fits up firmly. Uh, the other thing there is when you open that up, now you get a good inspection of your clean grain elevator chain and all your paddles. So go through that. Make sure you're not missing any paddles. There have been plenty of times where you, you go through a season and somehow, somewhere, you lost several paddles and they are at the elevator or they're in your home farm storage. You just you don't know where they're at. So you want to make sure you've got all your paddles because that will also lead to reduced capacity of pulling that grain away from that clean grain auger. What is the shrink factor on rubber? <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know. I think we got to test it to find out. Let's <laughs> on the next episode of Smart <laughs> We're going out to the dryer. <laughs> We're on location. I think the real question is, what's the strength factor of rubber versus hard plastic? Yeah. <laughs> Yield sense go. is the bigger question. We got to know uh, which one's which one's a better strength factor. Yeah. That's right. So on that note, I think we start to get into some of the things that maybe we see here at Precision Planning that can affect chain health, clean grain elevator health, just the entire assembly. Um, I, I'll just go ahead and speak for myself and say I know that's one of the things that when somebody complains about, like, uh, losing paddles or, like, hearing a lot of banging around in the clean grain elevator, like, there's a number of times, and this is not to point fingers, this is something maybe all of us in some way, shape, or form may be guilty of, but things can kind of bump into or run into that clean grain elevator. And so if there's any time that that clean grain elevator is not true, I would say that's a pretty tight tolerance that the chain kind of runs through in a clean grain elevator. That can affect how easily uh, the chain and panel assembly turn. So that's one thing that I know just in my experience of in the past, having guys take off our flow sensor pad and take a picture looking down the clean grain elevator that can kind of stick out to you of like, oh, something bumped into that clean grain elevator there. I can (laughs) can tell from that picture. Um, What about you guys? What are, uh, you know, I, Hans and Paul, anything that you've come across with uh, folks running the yield sense system and having to put in our our chain and paddle? Yeah, I mean, you're 100% right, and there's a lot of things that can be affected by that. So your divider plate's going down the center of the machine. you got a divider plate in the in the clean grain elevator from front to back side of it. Um, the side profiles of, of the clean grain elevator, those are two big wear piece items. Your divider plate keeps chains from getting caught as it goes around the bottom side. But I think all of it is, again, kind of that point of, Caleb, you, you said it, and I don't think people heard everything. You said you rotate it for every paddle. Rotate every paddle. That, rotate that, that chain all the way through because what you're looking for at that point is if you have a paddle or you have a spot in your clean grain elevator that's that's not a 100% up to par or is interfering, when you rotate that paddle all the way through, the chain all the way through, you'll feel it. When you do it by hand, you'll feel where that chain ha- hits something in the clean grain elevator that co- requires you to go back and fix it. You can't su- you can't find a frozen link on a chain unless you're looking at it. No, you can't. I mean, you're not going to catch it. And so that's the thing is, that, like, you rotate that whole thing through. You'll see the yeah. chain. You can expect the chain when you do it. You can expect for paddles to go with it. And that's just the, the best feel for the, the mechanical piece of it to get that done. Which also reminds me of sprocket wear. Yep. That's another thing that affects the way that the chain turns. Yep. Yeah. I mean, is that spro- when you're spinning it, you can feel it. Is that sprocket? Are you when you watch the chain move around the bottom sprocket? Are you seeing it slide around, or is it sitting in a pocket, sitting still in, in the, in the, and or is it sl- moving side to side? Does it move side to side as well? Because yeah. you, you want that chain to be snug in the in the pocket of the of the sprocket. Yeah, that chain link. I mean, so. and, and hook sprockets. I mean, that that is oftentimes. Well, I shouldn't say oftentimes, but you see that because of poor chain tension, not just on your elevator. You're also seeing that on your gathering chains on your corn head. I mean, yep. if you have a hook sprocket that is indicative of something else, maybe not properly tensioned, not properly set. Yep. So. And then when we were talking clean grain elevator, but that also goes for the return. Oh, one hundred percent. So you think there's two elevators on the side of the machine? You got clean grain plus your return. Both of those are carrying grain that you want to keep in good condition. These are things to keep take care of as far as performance goes to make sure that that stays where it's supposed to. Yeah. So, and you said chain tightening. And a lot of times, if it's a two or three year old system, you may be taking a half link out of that. You, you might have to loosen the chain up, and pull it back out, pull your adjustment loose, take the half link out, put it back in again. Um, and then tighten, or re-tighten the chain. Yeah. 
And, and that also goes, I mean, tailings, tailings or returns, however you yep. want to refer to that. Because, again, we have two names for it. Two names for it. Uh, so tailings comes into another play. There, there are newer machines that have what's called a rethresher on it. And so with a rethresher, you're actually taking that tailings or returns and putting it through a standalone concave system with a standalone rotor, or it's all smaller, of course, but you're putting it back onto the shoe instead of introducing it back into the processor or the threshing elements. So in a, it used to be that we had a, a return and it would take it and it would go and put it right back into that rotor, and that could help you uh, rethresh it, but it would also sometimes, if you're running high returns, could be a capacity pull. And so they decided, hey, let's put a rethresher on it. Let's put it on the side of the machine. We'll rethresh the tailings and then present it back to the shoe. And now you're in a good spot. But that brings another element of wear because yep. you have a, a grate inside of there that's that's threshing it. You have uh, more more bearings. You have, uh, you have uh, just a, another set of, of things that you're putting that grain through. And some of them even have an auger that crosses a, across the, uh, the cleaning shoe to dispense that out. So it's evenly placed on the shoe. So there's, there's a lot of things that are, that are also impacted in that clean grain and returns aspect. Yep. Kind of the final thing on, on grain handling. I mean, you've got your unload auger, uh, and your bubble up auger in your tank. Uh, overall, just make sure that you can actually, Extend and return your clean your unload auger. That's very important. Don't practice important. in the shop. Don't practice in the shop. Or around telephone poles. Or around telephone poles. Yeah, you wanna you wanna make sure you're in a good distance away from things, uh, as we all know. That that that's important too. I mean, that's I've I've seen that as well. Is it's the unload auger is seized, and when it goes to swing out and it doesn't, and you're you're at the first point where you're trying to unload on the go or you're trying to unload in the first truck, man, there's not much any, There's not much else that's more frustrating than that, that you've done all the work of your first pass and you feel good, and then that's the thing that stops you from continuing on. So Nobody wants to take grain out of a combined grain tank by hand. That's the bad day. That is a bad day. It's a bad day. That's that about, the, about bad as day. bad as slugging the machine. Yeah. With that, they're, those are your, your drive systems. We talked about the drives on chains on everywhere else, and that drive system on your clean grain or your unload auger is, is one of the, is the same thing. You've got a lot of them have bevel gears inside there with gearboxes again. Yep. All of those are things to take a look at if you can. 100%. Because um, those are, those are, that's the unfortunate day at the last day of the season when that gearbox goes out and you're <laughs> fully loaded full of grain. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I have seen it where a hole saw has been taken to the side of the the tank. That way, we wouldn't have to shovel it out. Oh, no. that's a tough day. That is a tough day. It's a tough. That day. is that is where a shear bolt uh, that they have placed inside the grain tank sheared. Yeah, and so there is no way for you to unload that that grain, whether or not it's any any maintenance ahead of time. You couldn't have done it. It was all because it was yep. a shear bolt inside the grain tank, which you know that's where you you write a very nice. And professional email of asking somebody to no longer put the shear bolt inside the grain tank, and be very gracious and understanding that the individuals who designed it designed it with the intention of, of giving you the best performance. But that may be one thing they've overlooked. Yeah. So, we're all human. We're all human. We're all human. Caleb, one of the so we've kind of covered most of the bases on clean grain on the grain handling aspect of it. What about residue? 
residue. This is and this actually is precision planting at a key here because this is setting up planting pass now. Oh, it is. It is. I mean, so, what what you do here is what's going to define how you how your season goes next year. Your season starts and ends with residue management. It, everything's been the same up to this point. Yep. Everything's been harvested up to this point. Now you're setting planting pass up. That's right. That's right. And so that's where maintaining your chopper, maintaining yep. your residue management system, your tailboards, everything that's that's in that process is extremely important. The the chopper knives when when you're first they taking don't a break. look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, those chopper knives. I mean, when you start to see it round off and you're losing your edge, you got to replace those or flip them around. Most you can flip around. There are some in the in the the aftermarket space that are self-sharpening, which are pretty neat, but they still wear. And you always got to be paying attention to that because once you, it's like we've talked about, you're looking for maximum efficiency, maximum throughput, managing the process, managing the factory. You put a pinch point at the end of your machine. That's going to affect everything up front. And so looking at those knives, making sure that drum is well-maintained, making sure the belt drive on that drum. I think we've got belt drive now. We've got hydraulic drive. I don't believe there's any in the market that are chain-driven. I could be wrong there. I think it's it's just those two, though, yeah. But in that situation, uh, if it's not working properly, you're going to be in a lot of a lot of trouble. So, and this is, the, I think there's two things that when you talk about residue, there's the sizing of residue, which is what our chopper is doing. And yep. then there's distribution and spreading residue. Correct. Correct. And so that's where your tailboard comes into place. And so your tailboard is something that when you're looking at that, those fins uh, are, are extremely important from a geometry standpoint. And the way they wear is they get shorter. And if they get shorter, you're limiting your throw of your distribution of your residue. So if you're trying to cover a 40-foot swath, which is if you're running a 40-foot head, you want to cover your header width, and you're not being able to attain that throw because you have a wear in that back of that tailboard or the, the uh, residue uh, spreader is what other people will, will term it as, you're going to put yourself in a poor position for the next season because you weren't able to attain that full throw. Yep. So, but that's a key piece. I mean, just yeah. making sure that you can actually – and that's the goal is to get it to those. And then some of these have the little spinners at the bottom, the actual the outboard spreaders yep. with hydraulic adjustments on those. Um, key thing on those is to make sure that you're – if you're in a wind environment, because these 40-foot, 45-foot drapers are getting to be – especially in soybeans when you're cutting – Yeah. The residue w- across wind is a is a problem. Yeah, so you so got you got to shoot you, it you into gotta that shoot, wind. You got to shoot it in the wind, and so one way you're overshooting one side, the other way you're undershooting by by ten foot. Um, it all goes back to that residue, even that balance out, because that's going to make your planter pass. That's setting the season up for next year. Yep, that's right. That's right. The other thing that uh, that as I think through things I have seen in my past that have been uh ohs uh, first day in the year is stationary knife beds if if you're going into corn and you have your stationary knife beds up that's going to be a problem so yep. as you're going through that machine and, you, and you're looking at your chopper uh, and you're checking your stationary knife beds to make sure that those are all good as well make sure if you're going into corn for that first setting drop those things down because that's something that's missed and it's it's yep. nobody's fault it's just you're going through the machine you're, you're setting it up for corn you get back there, you want to check those stationary knife beds, pull them up, make sure there's no wear on them, and then sure enough, you left them up. And, and man, that's a, that's, 
it's going to cause some rumbling in the back if you have those knife beds up with cops <laughs> trying to go through them. It's always an exciting day when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> so, Hans, you made a comment earlier of, I think that's all, I think it's just chain and hydraulic, no belt. I'm sorry. Belt. Belt and hydraulic. Chain, or belt and hydraulic driven. Yep. It was just that awareness of the industry. I've been, I've not been on newer combines in a while. Are there any unload augers that if you're not actively unloading after a certain amount of time, they auto return back to? Um, no, you always have to be, you always have to be engaging and disengaging. Now there is auto swing to where I, I, I don't have to hold the extension of the auger. I can just press the button once and it'll automatically go out and then I press it once to retrieve it. But um, there's no, Grandpa, don't forget to put the auger back, back in. in. Oh, there is, yeah. There's oh, one yeah. that will automatically fold it back in again? No, no. I mean, it's you always have to retrieve it. Yeah, yeah always there, to there is no, Grandpa, don't forget to put the auger back like, oh, no, you're asking. <laughs> I thought you meant there is no. I'm like, no, we still have to do that. We have to do that all the time. <laughs> we have to remind Grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> it's called the CB radio. <laughs> we we have what? to remind everybody on the opera. And it's not just combines. It's grain cart. Oh, I mean, yeah. you everything is. And, you know, once again, those are, those are things that you just, as you're running through the season, there is mental fatigue. There is physical fatigue. And you that's why you rely on the, on the people that you operate with to, to help give you guidance. It may not always come across as gracious tone, but, uh, but they will be there to help you out. So one of the pa- things, Paul, part of the reason. Uh, I was going to say, the, the, the real question is not the, put the auger back in, is to, hey, you're, you didn't turn the auger off. Yeah, that's, that's the one, one that's real problem. Is there's no more longer grain cart there. You didn't turn the auger off. Yeah, yeah thankfully yeah. that one will ding at you every 15, 20 seconds, so you won't run the entire length of the field. Well, and that that's so talking about modern machines and and combines that are coming out today. I mean, we're there are combines that'll put out five, six bushel per second out of their unload auger. I mean. You miss the grain cart or you forget to shut it off when the grain cart pulls away from you, which hopefully I, I know everybody listening has never experienced that. Never happens. Right? Never happens. But uh, you have those situations. With the amount of speed that we unload at today, man, you, you could you could put a lot of bushel down pretty quickly without – but by the time you see it and put your finger on that button, it, it'll leave a pile. Yeah. So. You know, part of the reason I was bringing up there or – the unload auger we hear while we do our technical training mm-hmm. as presenters and educators we'll be standing in front of a large group very commonly we have an unwritten or an unspoken rule of before you walk out in front of people if 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 my fly is down if my collar is up if i've got a mark on my face or whatever tyler is guilt-free gonna say hey um fix yourself up like Hey, let me fix that collar for you. Guilt-free. It's not nothing yeah. taken. That same thing should happen in the field. Hey, fold your auger up, auger out, you know. Yeah. Keep That's on radio. That's a good comparison. It's just communication. It's, you're not, there's nothing weird. You're not trying to be forceful about it. It's turn your blanker off. You're just in a, in a communication mindset of keep everybody up on speed. I would say the fly down is the agricultural equivalent of not folding your auger back in. I said that backwards. Not folding your auger in is the <laughs> agricultural equivalent of, hey, your fly is down. Auger's out? 
Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what we're going to refer to it from now on. <laughs> that is now product support <laughs> lingo for your flies down. Augers out. Hey, Tyler. Augers out. Nope. Oh, sorry. Thanks. Appreciate that. Yeah, I was trying to think of color or something. Another, yeah. another no, it works. faux so, pas, but yeah. yeah. No, I think you're... Paul, to your point, I think you're correct. Tyler, to your point, that's that is that is what it is. It's harder to hear in I think in in equipment uh, at times just because of your ego is is there's there's a little bit of ego in your performance and how you run a machine. Mm-hmm. Um, oh just, yeah, just men we carry that. There yeah. there's that yeah. aspect of it. And so that's a it is a hey just we're all on the same team communication yeah. aspect of it. But it is it is the the correct mindset of it's just communication. Yeah, this and, is and this is not a critique. It is, is communication. Yep. Like, and yep. there's a desire. I mean, there's a desire for all of us who are operating uh, equipment on operations to know everything. Like we 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 have that desire to be the the expert in any piece of equipment that we get in because we know that that is a direct reflection of how good of a farmer or operator we are. However, what I will say, and this goes back to operator's manuals, this goes back to videos, this goes back to everything that that, uh, our team produces for precision planning, what all the other companies produce for their equipment, is if if you have that desire, it's not not inappropriate to pull up the information and take a look and and learn and, and just dive in and really, I mean, I know a lot of us want to rely on tribal knowledge in our life, uh, especially from a farming operation because we were taught how to do something in a certain way, but taking the investment in yourself because we desire to do so to figure out with all of the changes. I mean, you look at combines 10 years ago, you look at planters 10 years ago, you look at combines 20 years ago, 30 years ago, planters 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and the rate of change and the learning curve, the expectation for us to, to step into a, a tractor or a combine we've never been in and know how to operate it at optimal performance right out of the gate, that game has changed. And so we as operators, we as as uh, as as farmers need to understand that hey yeah we've got pride in what we do and we have a desire to do the best that we can in the field but that also comes with a responsibility to to learn and to investigate and understand. Yep, hundred percent agree. It got deep. Did this is the deep tracks? Well, Caleb, I'm going to take it backwards just a little bit because I have what what is Hans is going to shallow it up here. I'm going, to shallow it. I'm going back. We're going. We're shallow going back to Auger out. <laughs> so, no, it's the uh, we we've spent a lot of time talking about pre planning or pre harvest maintenance and just kind of the things that yep. look forward. And we have a my brother and I have a running joke of um, around of the the guys that, that harvest September 5th time frame. They do one field and they they get done and they go out and they chisel it and they're, gonna, they're testing everything out and. We always kind of give them a little hard time because it's like the green field of shame. Yeah. Because it turns out it's like they got to get out and get the first field done and they got to see what they did wrong. And they get it out done, chiseled early, and they get rain on top of it. And then it turns grass green from, from all the the missing and leftover yeah. <laughs> when they didn't actually set it right. Yep. Um, and so this is the, the whole, I think to me, the podcast is the whole thing is trying to eliminate that green field of shame. Yep. Going through and setting everything up, not going through and doing it on the test field but setting up ahead of time 
Yeah. I, and, uh, you know, I think this whole discussion has led to these are the things you can do before you even step in or drive into that first field and nose in for the first time. That'll help you avoid that. Once you do get into that field, actually, I'll take a step back. Here are some other things that I always recommend people take a look at before they get into the field. Technology. Anything you're putting in that in that cab, uh, whether it's auto guidance, header height control, uh, row guidance, um, your task manager, your yield sensor, all your calibrations. Take take a day or, or a night. Uh, you know, when you put the kids to bed, go out into the shed, get into that combine, and sit there and, and actually invest time in going through the terminal. Once again, this is one of those things where we as individuals think we we can just get it, and I'm 100% guilty of this. I'm I'll I'll, I'll be 100% transparent in the fact that I think I can just jump into this cab and I know how to operate it instantly. But we focus on this piece of equipment for three months out of the year, yep. three months, and then we take a nine month break and then we come back in in three months. And you have software updates. You have changes in what you've done the year prior. You have all of these things. So you take that time and you invest in, let me understand my, my monitor. Let me make sure that I have all my fields set up correctly. Let me make sure that everything is, is talking and working appropriately. Uh, let me make sure my header height control is calibrated. Let me make sure that all my, all my settings are calibrated properly. I mean, those things are so important that you can you can invest the time and you can invest it with a good ROI in your mind for that share of time to say this will pay back for me spending two and a half hours playing around a little bit because I tell this at every combine clinic I've ever done get in the cab play on the monitor because it's a lot nicer to get frustrated when you're sitting in your shed than it is to be frustrated when you're sitting in the field because when you can't figure out that task manager to say, I want to be in this field, I want to be here, and it's telling me I'm in that field, and you're frustrated at that, that could have been avoided. May not, may not always happen, but it could have been avoided if, yep. if you took that little extra time. Yep. I'll throw and this out there and hope that we're on the same page. You have a quote on the top of the, your whiteboard in your office. <laughs> yes, I'm trying I do. to remember exactly how that goes. It's by Admiral Rickover, who is the father of the nuclear navy. Uh, the quote on the board is, the more that you sweat in peace, the less you bleed in war. And it's something that I, I truly believe is you put in the work prior to when you go to battle, you are going to make it through, and you're, you're going to be very successful. So That means getting everything, poking through everything, getting everything set up, finding out in the shot before you go to the field, yep. rather than when you're in the middle of that first field. You bet. Because here's the thing. Things are going to go wrong. We all know that. We've all harvested enough seasons to know that things are going to go wrong. Nothing is perfect. Same thing in planting season, right? Things are going to go wrong. By taking the proactive approach in maintenance, taking the proactive approach in, in making sure your machine is set up properly, you are going to avoid one of those fingers being pointed back at yourself and saying, I should have done what I ought to do X. You are now putting yourself in a much better position that when those things do go wrong, you're not compounding them on mistakes that you could have avoided. And you're putting yourself in a better situation to have a successful season. 
hundred percent agree. Yeah. So I guess I, I kind of, I kind of stepped away from the original question because I took a little bit of a deviation there because that's something I truly, truly believe in that you need to do that. The other thing that I would say is extremely important when you're nosing in for that first time is that's when you really take the theory of setting a combine seriously. A lot of us, and that's where, when, when Paul, when you introduce me as a combine expert, I don't know if there is truly a combine expert because there's so many different machines, so many different fields, so many different conditions that in a given day, anybody can be an expert once they take the time to sit there and dial it in. And at the start of the field, everyone's a novice. And everyone's a novice. So you have to, you have to take the time, you have to understand setting theory in order to make sure when you're going into the field, you're able to make the right choices and the right decisions based upon what settings you're changing. And so what I always tell people is there's a couple of rules of thumb when it comes to setting a combine. Number one, one variable at a time. One variable at a time. And the reason that's so important is you could be making changes to everything that you want to make so rotor speed, concave clearance, chaffer sieve, fan speed, I'm going to play around with all of these. You're never going to identify and validate whether that change you made on rotor was correct. Yep. You need to have the baseline of the variable. So you want to start off with the starting settings in the book, unless you've been running that machine for years and you, you know where you want to start it, which is always viable as well. But you want to have a starting point, and then you want to make changes to one variable at a time on that. Then the next step is is do it in small increments. I'm not talking about 100 RPM swings on the rotor. I'm not talking about taking your concave clearance and sucking it all the way up and then pulling it all the way back. Small increments. That's going to give you, again, the baseline to know, did the change I make make a positive difference while I'm operating that that's so important because I've seen it in situations where guys will do these massive swings because they think they know where the problem is and they they completely whiff and they miss over that setting that was the silver bullet of oh perfect I'm, I'm in the right spot here I made it to where I wanted to be and then the last thing that I always tell folks is is think through what your combine is doing if you're fighting a certain issue, let's say let's say we're getting cob in the bin, right? We're we're getting small pieces of cob in the bin. What are the things that are touching that cob that are making that issue? Because once again, there there's a lot of folks that just snap a line to rotor speed and concave clearance. And those are the only two settings I'm going to change in order to fix that cob. And then I'm fighting that the whole time. And sure enough, what I was doing wrong is I had my, my chaffer and sieve setting wrong. And so you got to chase back where that problem is originating from and find the true root cause. That's one of the things that I love about our product support team here at Precision Planning is we're not afraid to ask the next, well, why is it doing that? Why is it doing that? Why is it doing that? There is a old, uh, I guess it may not be old, but there's a process in business called the five wives. The five whys is not a bad principle to live by in combines because you keep wanting to dig in and find that root cause, and it may lead you to changing a setting that you didn't know would would correct the issue. I mean, one of the things that uh, that 
I, what was it? Uh, it was, we were grinding soybeans. Grinding soybeans, we didn't know why we were grinding soybeans, uh, and we were changing concave clearance, rotor speed, but that's where we thought we were getting all the soybean grinding was, was in the rotor. Well, what we found is that we were actually overloading our tailings because they had closed down the sieve completely. And so all that stuff that was hitting that bottom sieve was all rolling back to the tailings. So we were just reprocessing soybeans. It wasn't the fact that the first initial thresh was the one causing the damage. It was the fact that we were cycling through the machine seven times before we actually got a small enough particle <laughs> to drop through the louvers. And so that's those are just things that as you go throughout your your first pass, think about setting theory. Think about why it's important uh, and what different changes affect what. And that actually gives you a leg up as you move through the season because you don't want to be thinking that through that process uh, on October 12th when you're going into the next field. I'm going to force you to come back. You mentioned at the business in, in the, in the realm of business, the five whys. Mm-hmm. Uh, extrapolate, teach it out for our listeners. So <laughs> in, in the realm of business, one of the things, so Six Sigma is a process that is all designed to get to the best efficiency uh, within a process, uh, within a manufacturing process. So Six Sigma, you'll hear about people being white belts, uh, yellow belts, black belts, I think. I, I may be confusing that with karate, but there, there are different belt levels. Uh, when I went through it initially, I was very disappointed that I did not receive a belt. They don't give you a belt. Uh, I thought they would. I, I thought that was just, I was like, well, I'm going through this to become a black belt. Where's my belt? Um, but they don't. So for those of you that are going to go into Six Sigma, just I'm setting the expectation right now. You're going to have to go out and buy your own belt like I did. Um, I'm joking. I didn't buy my own belt. But uh, To whom it may concern. I am still awaiting my belt. <laughs> <laughs> Who should I talk to at your organization? But in, in the Six Sigma process, one of the things that they coach on is there's, there's, there's different tools in order to truly find out how do we make this process better. Uh, one of those is a fishbone process, a fishbone diagram. Uh, I won't get into that one because that's a, that's a long, drawn-out explanation. The other one is the five whys. And the five whys are you, you have to answer why is this doing this five times before you can start attacking a problem? You can't say we have an inefficiency in how our line puts this gadget together, right? You have to say, why do we have an inefficiency? Okay, now we we boiled it down to we have an inefficiency because – the line is not set up properly to we, – we have a pinch point in the line. It, they build up mm-hmm. too much, and then then we don't have enough capacity on the back end. Specifically, it is five times you need to ask and answer the question, why? Yep, five Anytime times. Anytime you do the process. So, so in your example of queuing up or, or setting and fine-tuning the combine process for this field, for this hybrid, for this crop, it is continually – Five times you have to answer, why am I getting this? Or or why am I not yeah. hitting my, am I not cleaning it well enough? Am I not able to hit uh, faster ground speed? Yep. Five times. So you have to have, channel your inner toddler. And <laughs> why? Why? 
Yeah, and you know that process works for for myself. It works for other people. It doesn't work for everybody. But at the end of the day, what it does do is it does challenge your mindset on finding the easy solution and going after that easy solution. Sometimes it is the easy solution, and you get lucky. Sometimes it takes all five whys to figure it out. And so, I, it's a tool that I use. It's a tool that I've coached people on using when it comes to setting combines. And I'm not saying to use it every time you want to clean up the bin a little bit. Sometimes we know how to do that. I mean, that's that's playing around with your chaffer and your sieve, and that's playing around with your fan speed. Uh, but it's when you run into those situations where, okay, I did that, and it didn't work. Now you have to ask the next why. Okay, or, I did that, and it didn't work. And why? I would also give the, the corollary of that if the answer is too easy. Oh, yeah. Like if if – yeah, it just does that sometimes. <laughs> those are the great ones to really dig in and, well, why does yep. it do those? But to our earlier conversation, then it all comes back to how many times am I going to ask why and is it the right business decision to ask mm-hmm. it that many times? Because if everybody chased a perfect bin sample with zero bushel loss with you know, the most optimal efficiency that they've ever run throughout route harvest. We would be harvesting starting in September in central Illinois, and we would go until April of the next year because nobody would be able to make headway because they would always be changing as they hit new, new conditions, new variables. And so that's not to say, Hey, be good, be, be okay with doing a bad job. That's not to say that at all. That's more to say, know that there is a business decision that comes along with it, and you have to make those choices. All right, so, Caleb, thanks for coming in, and we spent a good bit of time really yeah. diving into the second most important pass we're going to make because you got to have a planner to put it in the ground. That's right. And if you do nothing else, you got to pull the crowd back out. That's right. It's the two mandatory passes that we do. I feel much more versed in things. Yeah. Tyler? I am still reeling over here. We went all over the board on covering combine maintenance. We even got deep into business, personal decisions, our feelings around things. We covered it all. It'll take me a full week just to just to recover from this one, Paul. That's where I like to be. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good space. Well, I want to I wanna again tip my hat and say thank you, Caleb, for coming in. Oh, thank sure. you for inviting me. I, I love doing this. This is this is one of those things that I love that our team takes the time to continually educate our dealers and our growers and through this medium is is just it's heartwarming for me whenever I see the new podcast uh, episode comes up and you know, get to hear all of your guys' way better podcast voice than myself. <laughs> um, but it, it truly is, th- this is the thing that makes uh, working at Precision and our culture uh, unique in the fact of we are here today to help growers, and we're here today to be for growers, you're here today to be for dealers, and to be servants of, of this amazing industry and the fact that we have three individuals here around the table that have taken the time to dedicate into that, it just it just makes me I, – I couldn't be any prouder. So it, it, this is a lot of fun. And on the side note of that, my cheeks are going to hurt because it's, it's been a nonstop laugh trip. <laughs> <laughs> I've been enjoying it very much. So with that, Tyler, do you have any final words? No, couldn't have said it better. Thank you very much Yeah, for Appreciate being here. It. 
I appreciate it very much. And I appreciate you guys, the listeners, for uh, jumping in, learning along with us. And again, as always, if you have feedback or guidance for us here at the show, please share that with us, either in the feedback of the hosting service you're listening to or direct to us at smartereveryseason at precisionplanning.com. And we invite you to come along next time as we continue to get a little smarter every season. Augers out.